Great to be in Miami again. Baruch Hashem. It's a, uh, always the, uh, some of the greatest shiurim are here. We have a lot of the Siyat Dishmai here, Baruch Hashem. And I know that right now shiur is going to be good because we have already inter- uh, um, the Satan is already interfering. But uh, also the uh, shiur will have uh, for Rifuash Lema to Michel um, Koto, Amparo Balufe, Ruben Joseph Ben Rivka, Sarah Batsara, Gladys Nunez, Edil Magorero, uh, Josefina Matos, Esperanza Avila, Ana Cedeno, Guillermo Solano, Raquel Sandler, Luales Renzoli, Joshua Mikael Ben Hadassa, David Gamliel Ben Hadassa, Nancy Duesa? Oh, Duesa. Duesa? Mm-hmm. Patricia Valmana, Sonia Suarez, Nicole Valmana, Augustine. Hernandez, Jorge Hernandez, Isabel Betancur, 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 Liliana Antibonila, Gilberto Menes, 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 Jacqueline Rojas, Josephine Morejon, Pablo Lorenzo, Olga Hernandez, David Benesria, Doris Bajora, Levana Batsara, Sara Batlevana, and Bezrat Hashem. All of Ami said, if we could just have all of these people come at the shoe, it would be easier. So, Bezat Hashem, they all have Refuat Lema, Refuat Nefesh, Refuat Aguf. And Bezat Hashem, get closer and closer to Hashem and fulfill each one of our tests, each one of our obstacles. And Bezat Hashem, as we're going through all of it, really understand that everything that the Merciful One does is always for the best. Not just good, but always the best. You know, I had, after the shul last night, I had a meeting with a nice couple, young couple, and, uh, you know, new, trying to do tshuva, Baruch Hashem, trying to get stronger. They've been watching the shiurs for a couple of months, Baruch Hashem, trying to, starting to keep Shabbat, starting to uh, learn Torah every day. So, Baruch Hashem, things are improving, but I couldn't help myself to notice that there was a, still a big thing that's missing, not just from them, but from a lot of people that are going through difficulty, which is emunah. The basic level of emunah is one of the most difficult things to attain in your life. And I'm not talking about high level of emunah to the point where you're willing to jump off a bridge knowing that Hashem's going to catch you. I'm not saying that. I'm saying basic level emunah, that Hashem runs the world, it'll take care of you. That's it. 
We'll take care of you. Not only he runs the world, and of course, it's going to be gravity, it's going to be oxygen, it's going to be the... No, I'm not talking about that. That your monkey has also. He doesn't need to create you in order for you to know that he exists. I'm talking about enough bitachon, enough confidence in Hashem, just a little bit of confidence in Hashem that, you know what? It's going to be okay. It's going to be okay, don't worry, the panasah is going to come. Oh, it didn't come this month? I'll come next month. It didn't come next month? I'll come the month after. You didn't get married this month? You'll get married next month. If it's not next month, it's next next year, whatever. It's going to happen, don't worry. Why so worried? Why, Hashem forgot about you? He runs the whole universe. With no difficulty whatsoever, but you, he forgot? So how do I know that people struggle with this? Because they do what I did a lot. I'm trying to work on myself still. I mean, don't ever think that I'm talking just to you. I'm talking to myself a lot of this time. Is that I remember the first serious Musar that I got from Rabbi Ephraim. And Rabbi Ephraim is, he has a way that's very different than mine. I'm very blunt, not too gentle. He is a gentle soul. Big Talmud Chacham, he'll tell you something, but you don't even know he told you until you're already doing it five times. That's how good he is. It's amazing. I'm a little rough on the edges, what can I do? So, for I was complaining about something. I mean, it wasn't complaining about nonsense. I was complaining about, uh, you know, the fact that I'm dying, the fact that I'm sick, uh, you know, there's blood coming out of different parts of my body, I'm losing all my money. I'm complaining about real things. I'm not complaining, hey, listen, uh, my team didn't win. Yeah. I'm complaining about real things. And for me, for lack of a better word, life sucked. It was just horrible. Just I'm in pain all the time. My money that I thought was my money at the time, I didn't realize it was God's money. So it was running out the door faster than it came in. People that I thought were my friends became worse than enemies because they're still smiling at me. You know, it's better if an enemy, you know he's an enemy. It's better than a friend that you think is a friend that he's really an enemy. That's right. So, you know, that's why they have this saying, if with friends like this, who needs enemies? Sometimes it's, unfortunately, we find out this out after the fact. But anyway, going through all the struggles, and I just start complaining. And complaining and complaining and complaining. But not complaining like, listen, I have pain... Listen, I have uh, money lost. I'm not complaining about that. What I was complaining about was that I already started doing what I thought was tshuva. I started reading Tehilim nonstop. I started learning Torah as much as I possibly could. I started keeping mitzvot. I mean, I started changing my life. But it was only really a matter of like a few months. It wasn't like I was doing it for years already. It was like, whatever, let's say a year. Is it everything working? Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. perfect. Like usually, by the way, just so you guys know, every time we have a show on Facebook Live, the Satan shows up also. So he makes comments and he drives everyone crazy. <laughs> it's either an idol worshiper or a kofel. Or it's every day, it's every time we do a show, there's somebody that drives everyone crazy. So anyone that's watching it, don't don't even uh, respond to these people. Battery. Yeah, yeah, just ignore them. It's the best thing you can do with any of these people. But anyway, um, I'm having a really really tough time, and I already did started doing tshuva. I started keeping started keeping Shabbat and so on, and nothing changed. 
Actually, things got worse. My health deteriorated so bad that I I started thinking, like, okay, you know what? I probably don't have that much time left in this world. If it's not him taking me, I'm taking out myself. I couldn't deal with it. Pain was unbelievable. 24 hours a day in pain. It's not like you have a break. You know what? You have pain for two hours, 22 hours, you're okay. 24 hours a day of pain, non-stop. Emotional pain, physical pain. It's just a nightmare. And I'm thinking, you know, I'm trying to pray. I'm trying to learn some Torah, but I can't even finish one verse without getting up, sitting down, getting up, sitting down. It's a struggle just to sit down, just to just to function. And I start complaining to Rabbi Ephraim. I'm like, why is God doing this to me? I'm doing tshuva. Why is he doing this to me? Why don't he just fix it? Why don't he fix my health? Why don't he fix my job? Why don't he fix my marriage? Why don't he fix my this, fix my that? And for the first time ever, you know, all the time Rabbi Ephraim would tell me things with ease, try to give me different chidushim, find the answers to the Torah. But this one particular time, I get I went overboard to such an extent, I started complaining against God to such an extent, I was like, what is he doing for me already? I'm doing all this stuff for him. I'm praying to him, I'm learning, I'm this, I'm that. And he finally gives me my first serious, serious Musar lesson in just a few words. It was, what makes you think that God owes you anything? You guys ever think about that for a second? Who do you think you are that God owes you anything? He's your God, not the opposite. He doesn't work for you. He doesn't owe you anything. He created you. Everything you do is for you. You pray, it's for you. What do you do when you pray? You ask God for stuff. God, give me Parnassah, give me a wife, give me a husband, give me kids, give me this, give me that. You're, what are you doing when you're praying? You're not really praising Him as much as you're really supposed to. Oh, Hashem, you're so amazing. It's, no, no, you're saying, Hashem, you're amazing, so give me a car. Hashem, you're wonderful, so give me a house. It's like you're trying to like, you know, finagle and, and negotiate with Him. Hashem, you're amazing, and do me a favor, give me a million bucks. It's like you're negotiating with Hashem, like you're doing Him a favor with your compliment. In reality, when you pray, you're asking for stuff. When you study, when you study a little bit of Torah, you come to a shul, you watch a shul online, what are you doing? You're learning who your boss is. Anyone that ever wanted to get a job, serious job at my company or any real company, first thing they do before they come to a job interview is find out as much information as they possibly can about the owner. Who's the owner? Let me know his history. What's his background? Where did he learn this? Where did he learn that? Like, do I have anything in common with him? I'm going to meet the guy. Anytime anybody ever wanted to get a good customer, what do they do? They do research about the customer. Oh, Mr. Jones, why? I read all about you in the paper. You were in the paper three years ago about that, 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 that you did. Wow, Chazaku Baruch. It's genius invention. Why? Because first of all, people like to hear about themselves. So it's good for business reasons. But second of all, it's a show of interest. He's showing that you have interest in the other person and not just in what the other person has. 
When you're learning Torah, you're learning about your maker. You're not doing it for him. You're not doing him any favors. So who do you think you are coming with so many complaints? Hashem give me this, Hashem give me that. Why? Why do you think he owes you all this stuff? Now he may or may not give it to you. But the point is, is that once you rewire your brain to stop thinking that Hashem owes you anything, everything changes. And the reason why, it's okay, it's okay, don't worry about it. And the reason why is because when you go to somebody that owes you money, someone owes you money, you call the guy, he's like, hey, Joe, I need the money. You're not worrying about being so nice. Guy owes you a half a million bucks. You lent to them for 90 days, like the guy lent the half a million dollars to. He's a great guy. Nice guy, wonderful guy. I lent him $500,000. It was supposed to be a loan for 90 days. 90 days. It's been slightly over 10 years. I'm still waiting for the $500,000. But you call the guy. You say, hey, listen, Pete, I need the money. I'm not worried about being nice to Pete. Just like if you lent your friend $500. Same thing. Joe, listen, I lent you the money for two months. You're supposed to return it. No worry about, hey, Joe, how you doing? How's your family? Did that dog ever die at the end? Oh, he's okay. Oh, oh Hashem, grabs. I was praying for your dog. You're not worrying about the, the whole being nice. The guy owes you money. I want my money. Maybe you're going to be somewhat friendly or whatever. You don't want to attack the guy. But you're not worrying about, like, you know, appeasing him, if you will. He owes you something. It's not that you owe him money. Now, when you call your landlord, on the other hand, because you don't have the money to pay the rent, then you're nice. You're like, hey, oh, hey, Mr. Jones, how are you? How's the family? How's the kids? Oh, the kids are... Oh, you don't have any kids. Oh, yeah. But you know what? <laughs> if you would have had kids, they would have been very happy, I know, because you're a nice guy, Joe. Oh, your Joe, his name's not Joe, it's Steve. Oh, yeah, Steve, Steve. You know, all of a sudden you're trying to be so friendly. Why? Because you owe the guy money. And you don't have it. So you're extra, extra nice. Why do we act like that with humans? Which makes sense, by the way. But with God, it's the opposite. With God, we call God every day like he owes us something. God, why is my boyfriend not returning my call on time? God, why is uh, my boss not giving me a raise? God, why did I get a flat tire? Why do you keep doing this to me, God? Can't you just fix it? And we come to Hashem with constant complaints like He owes us something. Now if we could just switch. Switch a little bit. Like Rabban Yochanan said to his students in Gemara Masechet Brachot. When he was on his deathbed, his students asked him for a blessing. And he said to them, the greatest blessing I can give you is may you have fear of Hashem at least as much as you have of mankind. He said, no, no, for the Rav, maybe you made a mistake, you're dying. No, 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 no. May you have fear as, from, from Hashem at least as much as you have from man. He's like, at Khan, for the Rav, we're not understanding. What do you mean? Teach us. What does that even mean? What do you mean? Fear Hashem like man. It's supposed to be the opposite. Give the Rabbi respect like you give Hashem or something, or not even, but this doesn't make any sense. 
Because even though in reality you're supposed to fear Hashem more than anything else, in reality, you don't. You don't. How do we know? Anytime you make a sin, accidental sin, not on purpose, on purpose sin, you have a serious problem. You're driving on Shabbat, uh, knowing that you're not allowed to drive on Shabbat, you have a mental problem. You're pretty much saying, okay, Hashem, I want to go to Gehenom forever. You drive on Shabbat, to the Knesset, to the store, to anywhere. You turn on the gas, just, just because you want to hear music. You're telling Hashem, Hashem, thank you very much for reserving a room called VIP in Gehenom forever for me. <laughs> it's much stupid. If you actually know what Shabbat is worth to Hashem, and you still violate it, you're crazy. So I'm not talking about that type of sin. I'm talking about someone, accidental sin. They just started keeping Shabbat, trying to do tshuva. And you know what, by reflex, even if they're from from birth, accidentally they turn on the light. You know, sometimes you go into the bathroom and your natural reflex is to turn on the light. Or when you leave the bathroom, your natural reflex is to turn on, off the light. Naturally, it's not like something you think about too much. It doesn't require much brain space. But then, as soon as you shut it off, you turn it on, it's like, oh, it's Shabbat. Now, in the beginning, when you first start keeping Shabbat, that's what you do. Oh, it's Shabbat. A little while longer, a few months, it's like, oh, Shabbat. A couple of years, like, oh, Shabbat. After you get a little more numb, because you get used to Shabbat. Oh, what's the score today, by the way? You stop caring. You stop caring. You become comfortably numb. And it's okay, you just sinned. It was accident, it was accident. So Hashem's going to understand it was an accident. Hashem's going to understand it was an accident. In the days of the Beit HaMikdash, that accidental sin, you would have to bring a giant cow as a korban. Now the fact that you lived in Tiberia, or you lived anywhere else, that it would take you three days to get to Jerusalem, it didn't matter. The fact that you're going to miss out on two weeks worth of work just to bring this one korban. You have to get there, you have to stay there, you have to wait online, do the korban, and eventually come back. By the time you come back, you're off of work for two weeks. It's a big, big money loss for one accidental sin. Accidental, not on purpose, on purpose to give you death penalty. There's no, there's no korban, there's no tshuva for purpose, uh, a uh, sin that's on purpose. If it's accident, you bring a koban. Sacrifice. If it's on purpose, they say Kaddish. So for accident, you go bring a koban. Today, we make sense. Like, uh, Hashem's going to understand. It's accident, it's accident. But, if you finish your lecture at 3 o'clock in the morning, and you're driving 100 million miles an hour to get home as soon as possible because you don't really feel like being outside in, uh, you know, at 3 o'clock in the morning. You want to get home already. So you're driving 150 miles an hour and a cop turns on the light right behind you. What happens? Immediately your heart drops. Immediately your skull. He caught me. Oh, I'm going to get a ticket. Oh, $300, $400 to get, take my license. You start saying, Hashem, Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu. You start repeating Mishnayot, Filot. All of a sudden you became Chazdeh Mot You became the best in the world. 
all of a sudden, all the tefillot that you've ever learned, you remember them now. Why? Because there's a little sight, a little light chasing you now. And that's what Aban Yochanan was saying. You make sins with Hashem, you get used to it. You're not really scared of him. But you see the cop with his little lights. He just turned the light. You don't even know if it's of you. You don't even know if he's actually stopping you yet. Just the fact that you saw the light. You already got a heart attack. May you fear Hashem as much as you fear men. And that's us. When we question Hashem and act towards Him like He owes us something, it's even worse. Because we're putting ourselves in a scenario that it's mamash the opposite. The same hand that feeds us, we're complaining to it. So now if we switched, we did tshuva, just by now thinking about it a little differently. We say, you know what? Let me thank Hashem. Let me start thanking Him instead of complaining to Him. Let me start being more grateful instead of being ungrateful. (coughs) Everything changes. And the reason why is because the next time you pray to Hashem, you're not going to come with like one of these little complainers. Say, Hashem, why this? Why that? Why this? Why this? Why this? I did this for you. I did this for you. No. All of a sudden, you're like, Hashem, look how many things you've done for me already. Think... The conversation changes tones. Because now you're calling the landlord. Now you're calling the boss. Now when you learn Torah, it's like, I'm doing what I'm supposed to because I want to get the job. I'm learning Torah so I know who my maker is. I'm praying to him because I want to have a conversation with him. Everything changes completely. Your entire life changes completely once you realize Hashem does not owe you anything. Rabbi Ephraim said a good story in a short chidush he gave a couple of days ago. He said a woman came to Rab Oyobach, Zechir Tzadik V'Kadosh Livacha, and came to him and cried to him that she hasn't been able to have kids for 20 years. 20 years she's trying to have children Unfortunately, no success. Now, Royabach was soft heart, a loving, amazing soul, huge, giant Talmud Chacham. And he says to her, you know, he cried with her. He felt her. He understood the pain she's dealing with. That was one of the amazing traits of the Gdolei Adol, is that they could, use, they could connect to people, not just by words, but much with feelings. You cry, they cry. Even though they've never met you in their life. You know how many stories I've heard about Rav Ovadia Yosef and many of the other tzaddikim that would start hysterical crying with complete strangers. We barely are able to cry with family. They're crying with strangers. Why? Because another Jew is suffering. For them, that's painful. So he started crying with her, but then at the end he said to her, You know, Hashem doesn't really owe you anything, He doesn't owe you a child. He structured the world in a way where nature looks like it's taking its course, things look natural, even though Hashem Himself is nature, and that's why the word Elohim, with a hey, has the same numerical value as Hateva, which means the nature. In Hebrew, both equal 86. 
Hashem telling you, I am nature, but in hiding. And he operates the world in a natural way. But nonetheless, there are certain things. He says, listen, this person will have ten kids. This person won't have any. This person will be rich. This person will be poor. This person will have a husband. This person won't. This person will have a wife that's loving and caring. This person will have the Satan's ex-wife. Because even he couldn't deal with her as a wife. You understand? The point is, is that Hashem decrees all these things based on our actions, based on our gigulim, all different cheshbonot, all different types of accounting and calculations that only Hashem knows. Nonetheless, Hashem runs the world the way He wants to run the world. It's not according to our tune. What He wants to do, He'll do. So Oybach tells him, Everything that you're doing, you're saying you're doing, you're modest, you keep Shabbat, you keep mitzvot, you're a wonderful, amazing person, that's all you're really supposed to do. Everything that you're doing, you're keeping all the mitzvot, you keep kosher, you tell people that Hashem is great, you pray, you cry when you pray, all of those things that you're doing, you're supposed to do anyway. There's no extra credit for coming to work on time. You're supposed to come on time. There's no extra credit for completing your job. You're supposed to. If you don't, you get fired. Now we have an understanding of this, most of us that are logical human beings, with our job. But we have a misunderstanding of it with God. We think that every time we learn something that's connected to Hashem, we're supposed to get like the lotto, minimum. Minimum, we win the lotto if we read Parashat Shavua. So, in essence, first thing we have to understand is that there are things we're supposed to do. We get rewarded for them, but nonetheless we're supposed to do them. Meaning that even if there was no reward, we'd still have to do them. Why? Hashem said so. This is how this week's parasha begins. After Moshe Rabbeinu spends 40 days and 40 nights in Mount Sinai, now I'm sure he saw some amazing things. The Gemara says that he saw every generation that ever lived, before and after. He saw Adam Rishon, he saw creation, he saw Noach, he saw Avram Avinu, Yitzchak, Yaakov, he saw the forefathers, the twelve tribes, everything that happened before him. And he saw everything that's going to happen after him. When he saw Rabbi Akiva, he asked Hashem, if you have somebody like this that's going to come to the world, why are you giving me the Torah? He's such a giant. He saw the end, he saw the Mashiach. This is just one of the things he saw. When Hashem said, I'm going to give you the Torah, the angels came to Hashem and said, why are you giving him the Torah, flesh and blood? Why? They're going to disgrace the Torah, they're going to sin these people. Why would you give them the Torah, give it to us? Hashem says to Moses, answer them. And Moses in his fear, he says, throw fire. That burn me, these angels. Each one of these angels is larger than the world. And it's all fire. 
You want me, flesh and blood, to answer them? I'm scared they're going to burn me. Hashem says to him, hold on to my kiseh kavod. To my holy chair, my holy throne. Hold on to it. I'll protect you. Answer them. Moshe Rabbeinu says, well, the Torah says, honor your mother and your father. Do you have a mother and a father? No. So obviously the mitzvah wasn't meant for you. It says, honor the Shabbat. Do kiddush. You do kiddush? Obviously it's for mankind. And he goes through this list with every mitzvah. He says, look, each one of these mitzvot that's in this Torah was created for men, not for angels. And the angels accepted his rebuttal. And each one of them gave him a present, including the Malach HaMavit. Even the Malach HaMavit came and gave Moshe Rabbeinu a present. So now you have such an amazing gift that we got in Mount Sinai. He saw all these amazing things. Comes down from the mountain and you have this parasha. And it says, Vayikal Moshe et kol edat b'nei Yisrael vayomer alem ele advarim asher tziva Hashem la'asot utam. Moses assembles the entire nation and instead of telling them, hey guys, listen, the stuff I saw up there is amazing. I saw angels. I saw the future. I saw the past. By the way, Noah was a good-looking guy. And you start telling them stories and what you saw and what you want. You saw 40 days, 40 nights of everything. It's the greatest thing in the world. What is he saying? No, he doesn't say any of that. He doesn't even stop by his house to say hello to Tzipora, his wife. He doesn't stop by his parents and say, Hey, Abba, Ima, how are you guys? I haven't seen you in a month and a half. It's a long time. You guys okay? Everything okay? How about you feeling okay? He doesn't do that. He doesn't come and pick up his kids, hold them, kiss them, nothing. What does he do? Comes down from the mountain and he says, these are the things that Hashem commanded. Why? Because it's much more important than what I saw. It's what you need to do to survive. The first and most important thing is what you need to do just to fulfill your part of the deal. So he's going to go and start telling them of we have to do all these things. This parasha happens to be another one of the parasha that talks about the construction of the tabernacle. But before he goes into the tabernacle, he says, hey, first things first. On six days, work may be done, but the seventh day shall be holy for you. A day of complete rest for Hashem. Whoever does work on it shall be put to death. You shall not kindle fire in any of your dwellings on the Shabbat day. Before we even talk about the house of Hashem, the construction of the house of Hashem, before we talk about eating kosher, before we talk about tarat mishpacha, before we talk about any of the mitzvot, including building the house of God on earth, which you would think naturally is, that's the number one. No, 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 my friend. First, you have to admit 
that Hashem created the world in six days and rested on the seventh just for you. How do you do? How do you admit that? How do you announce that? How do you live with that? By fulfilling the Shabbat. Observing the Shabbat. Once a person violates Shabbat, he is denying Hashem created the world in six days and rested on the seventh. Whether he's violating the Shabbat because he doesn't have emunah about money, or he's violating the Shabbat because he just doesn't feel like it, or he's violating the Shabbat because he doesn't know so much, it doesn't matter. You're still violating the Shabbat. You're still violating the beginning. And this is why Chazal explains to us in the Zohar and the Gemara and several other holy books, Shabbat is like all of the mitzvot. This is why, my friends, I tell you that anyone that's serious about tshuva, anyone that's serious about converting, anyone that's serious about connecting to Hashem, must understand these things. Because Hashem doesn't owe you anything. So, first thing is, if anybody thinks about converting, the first thing they have to understand, do I have the ability, both physically and mentally, to observe Shabbat? If the answer is, I'm not sure, don't convert. Because the knowledge is not too difficult to attain. I mean, you learn a few basic things about Judaism, the halachot of kosher, basic halachot of Shabbat, some holidays, some basic things, you convert. You can, it's not that difficult to pass the test. The tough part is the lifestyle change. And the first and most important one is observing Shabbat. If you're not able to live in a Jewish community... You can't observe Shabbat to the full extent. And the reason why is because, number one, you're not going to know what to do. Number two, you can't go to be part of any keilah. You're by yourself. You're not really supposed to be a Jew by yourself in the beginning. Even though it's not an obligation to go to synagogue, the reality is if you're brand new, where are you going to go? How do you know what you're doing is right? You have to be part of a Jewish community. And if you want to live six miles away from the synagogue because the houses are cheaper over there, that's wonderful, but the problem is that you still can't go to shul. Why? Because you probably don't have an, any roof. You can't walk six miles on Shabbat unless there's any roof. Unless you're inside this hypothetical circle, if you will. So, again, living in a Jewish community has a lot more to do, a lot more than just being part of a synagogue. There's a lot more to it. The point being is that Moshe Rabbeinu, instead of telling us about all the wonderful things that he saw, he's saying, listen, first things first, Shabbat. Shabbat is not just a day of rest. Shabbat is not just a day to eat. It's not just a day to learn Torah, even though the Torah you learn on Shabbat is worth a, a thousand times more than Torah you learn during the week. Shabbat is the day that you scream out to the world, I believe that Hashem created the world in six days rested on the seventh I believe in the creation I believe in the Torah from beginning to end and not just believe in your heart but believe in your actions so now when we look at it, the world in a way as if Hashem owes us something keeping Shabbat we start acting like we're doing Him a favor oh Hashem I've been keeping Shabbat for five years and we expect to get like a extra credit for it. No, my friend. Even though the Torah says you'll get 
all of your heart's desires, if you really, truly honor Shabbat, technically, even if Hashem didn't put that verse in the Torah, you'd still have to keep Shabbat. Just simply because that is showing that you believe in God. So now, once we realize that we're obligated to do it, then we're like, okay, you know what, if I'm already obligated, let me find a way to enjoy it. Then Shabbat starts becoming fun. Then Shabbat is no longer something that I'm doing as if I'm doing somebody a favor. Then it's something I have to do anyway, so let me find a way to do what I have to do, but enjoy it. It's like somebody say, listen, I already have this job. I don't really like the job that much, but at least let me make the best of it until I find a better circumstance. Now, no one can find a better circumstance than Shabbat, especially once they know what Shabbat is, but you understand my point. So this woman in the original story that we started with Rav Oyerbach was telling him, I'm doing this, I'm doing this, I'm keeping Shabbat, I'm keeping this, I'm keeping this. Rav Oyerbach says, listen, everything you're doing, you have to anyway. And Hashem doesn't owe you anything in return. Anything He gives you is a bonus. But that doesn't mean that the, the, the gates of heaven are closed. What it means is that the basic level entry, you're getting what you're supposed to. In a natural way. You want something more? You want something more than what Hashem naturally decreed for you? You have to start doing more. Meaning you have to start doing things beyond your obligation. You're obligated to keep Shabbat, you're obligated to keep kosher, you're obligated to be modest, you're obligated to do all of these basic level mitzvot. There's certain things you're not obligated to do. You're not obligated to do kiruv. If you see another Jew that's not keeping anything, you should obviously tell him, but you're not obligated to spend every minute of extra time that you have, aside from learning Torah, to go look for Jews and bring them back to Hashem. You're not obligated to go out there and say, you know what, guys, every week we're going to get 50, 60, 70 people from the community together, we're going to bring some speaker, and he's going to speak to us some Divrei Torah. You're not obligated to organize this event. You're not obligated to have this headache in your life. You're not obligated to do that. But if you show Hashem that I'm willing to do something that's beyond my obligation, and it's something that Hashem wants you to do, obviously, Hashem wants you to bring His children back, then you're giving Hashem a reason to do something beyond what He naturally decreed. And this is exactly what the woman did. She decided to open an organization to help sick people, to help different Jews in a time of need. And she started a small organization, little by little, building a bigger and bigger, and today it's a very big organization, Baruch Hashem. And along the way, Hashem gave her not one, not two, but not three blessings. He gave her multiple blessings of multiple kids, even though she didn't have kids for 20 years. But Hashem Barach decided that she did beyond her nature, and therefore he did beyond what nature was supposed to be for her. Again, this is, again, this is when we rewire our brain with truth. Now, in the book of Samuel, 
You learn something very, very interesting. Samuel what? Samuel 1. Samuel 1, 1. First verse of Samuel 1 said there was a certain man from Ramatayim. He says his name was Elkanah. We find out this Elkanah wasn't exactly a big Talmud Chacham or anything. He wasn't a... Uh, the most righteous man that ever lived. But we find out that Elkanah receives the merit from Hashem Barach to be the father of Samuel. Samuel the prophet, which the Gemara says, was the equivalent of Moshe Rabbeinu and Aaron, a Kohen together in his generation. In his generation, he was the equivalent of both of them. In the Pesach Haggadah, you're going to read different things. In the beginning, you're going to read about a dinner. A dinner, a Pesach dinner, a Pesach Seder that was held at Rabbi Akiva's house in Bnei Brak. And each one of them is going to say, each one of the guests, each one of the sages is going to say some divrei Torah. And one of them is Rabbi Lazar ben Azariah. And he was the president of Am Yisrael. First in command. When did he become first? When did he become Gdol Ador? When did he become number one? At the age of 18 years old. So this 18-year-old, in our eyes, kid, that became number one, when you have people much, much older than him, 70, 80, 90 years old, they made him president. Why? Because he knew more Torah than everybody. But this is not natural. If you have somebody, you have uh, even a one of the Dayanim, head Dayanim, not even talking about Gdol Adol, just one of the head Dayanim in Jerusalem, let's say. And you compare him to even a genius 18-year-old kid today, you can't compare. He's been learning Torah for 67 years, he's been learning Torah for 15 years. You can't compare his Torah and his Torah, even if the 18-year-old's a genius. He's got 67 years on him. Even more so in the days of the Bet HaMikdash, even more so in the days of the Gemara, so how could they all choose this 18-year-old to be their president, to be the Gdol Adol? And the reason why is because, as he says in the, you'll see in Agadah, he says, in my 70 years, in seven, I, am, I am like I'm 70, in the 70 years I've never seen anyone speak about the Exodus at night. But we just learned he's 18. What's 70? And Chazal explains to us that Rabbi Lazar was really the Gilgul, the reincarnation of Samuel the prophet, who died at the age of 52. And Rabbi Lazar remembered his previous Gilgul. He remembered being Samuel. 
So in his mind, in his life, in his reality, he's really been around for 70 years. And he wasn't just some guy for 52 years. He was Samuel the prophet. That's why they made him Gdolado. But the question still remains. Samuel had his merits. His mom prayed for him nonstop. She cried. She prayed. I mean, he went through his own thing. But what was the merit of his Abba? What was the merit of Elkanah to father such a child? Listen, this, Hashem has many, many options. He doesn't have to give them to him. Could have made him Moses' son. Could have made him Rabbi Akiva's son. Could have made him many other people's son that were much smarter, much more well-known in Torah world. But he gave it to Elkanah. Why? In the book of Ezekiel, you'll see that Hashem is very stringent on a very unusual mitzvah we talked about a few weeks ago. He says that when you go to Bet HaMikdash and you enter Bet HaMikdash, you're not allowed to leave from the same place you entered. You're not allowed to leave from the same place you entered. The Gemara explains why. Why is the big deal? I came in from the front door. I'm going to leave from the front door. Hashem will punish the person severely if they do that. Why? Gemara explains because chas v'shalom, you'll get used to the Bet Mikdash like it's the walls of your house. You enter and leave the Bet HaMikdash just like you enter and leave the same entrance in your house. You'll think that the Bet HaMikdash is your house. It's not your house. It's the house of God. Don't feel too comfortable. So I always wondered, you know what, this makes a lot of sense. It's a place of respect. You have to honor it. You know, in a Western world, they have these different etiquette uh, rules where if you go into a public building, you're supposed to take off a hat. I don't really understand the, the significance of it, but nonetheless, it's a rule that everyone knows. You go into a courtroom, you're supposed to take off your hat. So, meaning respect the place. There's rules in the place, respect it. But the Mikdash, even more so, it's telling you, you're coming to the house of God, not some house of uh, some judge of flesh and blood. Make sure you don't feel at home. Because it's not your house. It's the holiest place that ever existed. What does this have to do with Elkanah? Elkanah understood this mitzvah to such an extent that he made sure that each time he takes, he makes his pilgrimage to Jerusalem which he did four times a year throughout all of his life, he made sure to take it in a different direction. To get there in a different route. Not only not to enter the Bet HaMikdash from the same entrance as he leaves, but to not even get to Bet HaMikdash from the same place. 
He did beyond his nature. Beyond what he was supposed to. And because he did beyond what he was supposed to, Hashem gave him another mitzvah opportunity. Because mitzvah goreret mitzvah. One mitzvah leads to another. Hashem says, oh, you like my mitzvot so much, you're doing even more. I'll give you another mitzvah to do. I'll give you another mitzvah. As David HaMelech writes in Psalms, may these mitzvot chase me. What do you mean mitzvot chase me? You're doing so many mitzvot, Hashem's going to give you more. You want all this chesed to chase you, these opportunities. You, if something's going to chase you in life, it may, may as well be chesed, may as well be good things, not problems. We have problems all day chasing us. David HaMelech has said, listen, something has to chase me. At least let it be chesed. So Elkanah understood this mitzvah of never feeling too comfortable at the house of God. So he was a machmir. He went different route altogether to even get to Jerusalem. Hashem said, oh, you like my mitzvot so much? That you're not only going there one more time than you're supposed to. You're supposed to go three times a year. You're going four times, but on top of it, you're stopping your life, you're stopping your job, you're stopping everything just to come visit me. And you're doing it to make sure that you don't get used to anything. If you give me some serious respect, I'm going to give you extra mitzvah. Each time you go, you're going to collect more Jews that have never seen Bet HaMikdash. And they're going to say, hey, where are you going? He said, I'm going to Bet HaMikdash. Oh, I never knew you'd get to Bet HaMikdash from this way. I always heard about it. Yeah, yeah, it's only three days that way. Okay, I'm coming. The next year, hey, where are you going? Going to Bet HaMikdash. Oh, I didn't know you got to Bet HaMikdash that way. How is, how far is it? That's only a day and a half. Okay, I'm going with you. And it says that slowly but surely Elkanah brought the entire nation of Israel to Bet HaMikdash. The entire nation of Israel he brought to Bet HaMikdash. And then I finally understood why he had a son like Samuel. We do something that's beyond our nature. Hashem will reward us for it. This Rabbi Lazar is in our Mishnah. He's in our Mishnah. We continue. Chapter 2, Mishnah 19. Rabbi Lazar says, Translation Rabbi Lazar says one of the students of Rabban Yochanan also giving us the three critical pillars of life We've already heard from a couple of the other students. Now we're already from Abiy Lazar. And he says, these three things, you have these three things as a foundation, you have everything. You can build everything on it. You have a rotten foundation, you can't build anything on it. You can build whatever you want, but it'll explode. It'll, it'll collapse. It may last a week, a month, a year, five years, but eventually it's all going to come crumbling down. 
Rabbi Lazal says, be diligent in the study of Torah. And know what to answer the heretic, the apikos. Know before whom you toil, and know that your employer can be relied upon to pay you the wage of your labor. Simple translation of things is not too difficult. First and foremost says study Torah. This we've already heard many, many times. But he connects it to something new. Right next to it, the Rambam, and also the um, Rabbeinu Yonah, both agree that the reason why he connected these two things is because it's actually one thing. He says, be diligent in the study of Torah and know what to answer the heretic. Meaning, that in order to answer the heretic and actually win the battle, you can only do it with Torah. Don't try to use your own wisdom, your own science, your own medical degree, knowing his book, because unfortunately a lot of people, what they try to do, and it's not a good idea. I think in our generation, there's probably only one person that can actually do it. But that's also because he knows more Torah than most people. And that's Rav uh, um, Tobia Singer. But a lot of people, when they have debates with these idol worshippers, Christians, Catholics, what they do is they try to learn the New Testament and try to prove the Christians wrong through the New Testament. And they fail miserably most of the time. Miserably, they fail. Not because the New Testament has any validity to it, but by the fact that you actually acknowledge the New Testament as an actual valid document, you've already lost the argument. This is the reason why the most famous debate in modern days that actually was between Jews and the Christians the most famous one, the most successful one, the one that has changed more lives than anyone else, is the debate that Rav Mizrahi had with the Christian professor. It wasn't because Rav Mizrahi started quoting verses from the New Testament. And they went tit for tat with the New Testament. It wasn't even necessarily because the other guy was quoting verses from the Old Testament to prove his case. It wasn't because of that. The reason why is because Rav Mizrahi did exactly what this Mishnah said to do. You want to prove the heretic wrong? You want to prove that the Torah is right? Do it through the Torah. Don't do it to anything else. Do it with Torah wisdom. First thing the Torah tells us is that if anything contradicts the Torah, it's false. If your chidush that you have, you know, everyone thinks they're Rashi these days. They read Torah, they read some commentary, they learn Pasha Shavuot for one or two years, all of a sudden they're like, no, no. Listen, they said that there's 70 faces to the Torah, so that means that I can start adding commentary to the Torah. Every other day you have a new junior rabbi writing commentary on the Torah, like uh, their Rabbi Akiva. Problem here with this is that People, yes, even though there is 70 faces to the Torah, and even though there's different opinions of certain things, there's also a very big misunderstanding of what that means. 
commentary and opinions and anything you're going to do with the Torah, if it's today, if it's coming from today, you have to understand one major thing. If your opinion, your commentary, your thought, your chidush, your anything contradicts previous generation, you're wrong. By default, you're wrong. It's not like maybe you're right. There is no chidush. If you don't agree with the Rambam, you are wrong. Rambam is never wrong. And you're right. If your chidush contradicts Rashi, you are wrong. By default, even if you're the biggest genius ever, you're still wrong. Because you're not even equal to the shoestring of Rashi, or Rambam, or Tosfot, or Eben Ezel, or Rabbi Yosef Karo, of course not Rabbi Akiva. You can never be right and them wrong. And that's what we fail to understand. Especially people that are new, like, oh, listen, I heard there's different opinions, so maybe it's, uh, everything is up for interpretation. Now, this would be a contained problem, and not such a big problem, even worth mentioning, if it was only a problem with the new people. It's a problem, let's say, with the converts, or it's a problem with, let's say, I don't know, some ballet chuva. It wouldn't really be that, that big of a problem. The serious problem here is that this is actually sometimes even a bigger problem in the frum world. Where you have these young guys going to religious schools. Sometimes they're not taught the right, whether it be a university that calls itself a yeshiva also, or it's a yeshiva, and they're not explained thoroughly to have serious honor for the sages. And they're taught, or they misunderstand the teacher to the point where they think that their thought, their chidush, could potentially contradict Rashi or Tosfot or Rambam or anyone before them. And they start telling people, yeah, but you know, everything is up for interpretation. Everything is up for interpretation. Why do I mention this? Because in one of the debates that I watched, there was a rabbi that didn't belong in a debate in the first place. They had a debate that was organized by a couple of Jews that were reformed. But they want to, you know, they want to be open-minded and share their knowledge. So they brought the Rasham of the generation, some guy named Brown. He's one of the debaters for idolatry, for Christianity. And um, they brought him, and they brought this rabbi to debate him. I forget the rabbi's name. The rabbi didn't know anything. He lost the debate before he started. Once he started the first five minutes of, his, of the debate, he's complimenting the idol worshiper. <laughs> of how he has a PhD, and he knows several different languages, and this, and all this. The guy didn't belong in the debate. And what happens? He desecrated Hashem's name. This was a horrendous, horrendous show. Obviously. Not because Judaism lost, but because we made a foolish mistake. 
of having a guy going to debate someone when he's not supposed to go debate. So, and the reason why he lost is because he wasn't using the Torah as the foundation. He was using his knowledge, his expertise, and everything else but Torah. Trying to talk philosophy, trying to talk psychiatry and psychology, trying to rationalize with people. That's not how you win a debate. The way that Rav Mizrahi won his debate is the first thing first was showing that the Torah is real. Everyone agrees, including the idol worshippers. Okay, point number one achieved. Target two is the only target left. What is it? Show the New Testament's fake. Doesn't matter what it says. Once you show it's fake, once you show it's man-made, it's irrelevant what it says. Because even if it has 99% truth in it, which it doesn't, but even if it has 99% truth in it, that 1% of falsehood makes the whole document false. It's just like, for example, if we're all in a desert, and we finally get someplace, and the guy says, listen, I have water for all of you. I have water for all of you. But just so you know, two hours away, there's a city. You're going to get to the city. But you have an option. You could all make it there. You could all make it to the city. It's another two hours. You've already been walking in the desert for a while. You have the energy. I tested you. I know for sure you can make it another two hours. Or you could just, why struggle? Why suffer? You could drink the water that I have right in front of you. There's only one problem. Out of the hundred cups that I have here, they all look like water. One of them has poison. Not all of them. Just one cup. There's a hundred cups. One of them has poison. Raise your hand if you would drink the cup. Any of the cups. Why isn't anybody raising hand? Because logically, you know, there's a, even if there's a 1% chance of you dying, you're not going to drink it. 1% poison makes all 100 cups poisonous. 1% falsehood makes the entire document false. Correct. Because once you know there's one level of falsehood in it, it's no longer reliable. <clears throat> you don't know. Maybe there's something else too. Maybe it's 2%, 3%, 4%, maybe 50%. The point is you found one thing that's wrong. Once there's something wrong, it's man-made. Once it's man-made, it's no longer divine. Once it's no longer divine, it's not Torah. Once it's not Torah, who cares what it is? It's not worth anything. And that's what Rabbi Mizrahi did. When he showed them that Jacob, it says in the Torah in a couple of places, came down from uh, Egypt, came down from uh, Canaan to Egypt with 70 souls, with 70 people. New Testament says 75. What? God couldn't add up? He forgot how to add. There's five mistake. That's true. When he said that the Marat al-Machpelah, the king of Machpelah is in the wrong address, which you can verify today because it still exists. It's in the wrong city. It's another mistake. And countless other errors. Point being is that he used this Mishnah like you're supposed to. It doesn't just say go learn Torah. He says go learn Torah so you can answer the heretic. 
Because if you actually want to have a chance to win, you want to do a Kiddush Hashem, you want to help people convert, you want to help people stay away from it, you could only do it with Torah as a foundation. Once you use their document, you already lost. Not only because they're probably going to know it better than you, but the fact that you're giving their document any recognition whatsoever means that there's a chance it's valid. But we all know it's not. So, makes sense. The sages dealt with heretics for many, many years. And people don't know what I say to people. If there's anything any good in the world, it must have a source in the Torah. If there's anything that you need to learn, it can be learned from Torah. And people don't understand to what extent, because obviously people today don't truly understand the significance and the breadth of Torah. So here's an example. In the Gemara Masechet Sanhedrin, Rabban Yochanan says the following page 38b wherever the heretics have used the verse in scripture to support their heresies the rebuttal to their challenge can be found in a nearby verse explanation because there's plenty of people that have been trying to go against the Torah one way or another on one end, the Apikos is one that is constantly trying to cool everyone off, get them away from Torah. He's one that says that the Torah is not divine, or he's one that says that the oral Torah is not divine. And he interprets the Torah in a way that's not authentic. Unfortunately, today we have many of them, and some of them even wear a kippah. Anyone that starts translating the Torah to his convenience, and that convenience happens to contradict the sages, is an apikos. But the sages say, listen, you have to fight them, but only if they're not Jewish. Only if they're not Jewish, you have to go fight them. Argue, debate them. Go do a Kiddush Hashem. Because if he's a Jew, Rav says, you argue with him, you're going to make him worse. Because he has a Yetzirah. Once he has a Yetzirah to leave Judaism, to become a kofer, to become a apikos, to become a denier of the divinity of the Torah, then it's an ego battle. It's no longer a truth battle. So even if you prove them, listen, I can prove to you the Torah scientifically. I can prove to you the Torah rationally. I can prove to you the Torah in any way you want. You want to debate? I'll show you facts. It doesn't matter anymore. Why? Because he's not looking for the truth. He's looking to be right. He's looking to win. Because he has something that the Goy doesn't have. He has a Yetzirah. 
And that's why to convert someone, after showing them the truth, is much easier than to get somebody to do tshuva. Much easier. As strange as that sounds, it's much, much easier to convert someone from idolatry, from Christianity, from Catholicism, from Buddhism, from whatever religion you want, much easier than to get a Jew that left the derech to come to Chuba again. Both are possible, but it's much easier to convert someone. Why? Because, listen, I showed the guy, that believes in Christianity, hey, listen, the book that you believe, the book that you bow to, the book that you praise and say truth, look, it has one, two, three, four, five, seven, eight hundred mistakes. Just in the first chapter. What are you saying? No, it's not a mistake. It's a mistake. You, you yourself agree that the Old Testament, a.k.a. Torah, is the truth, right? Yes, okay, look at what the Torah says. Look what your new false testament says. What are you going to say? No? It's finished. Argument's over. If he's looking for truth, argument is the end. Beginning, end. That because many of them claim to know Torah. So before you even start the sentence, like, no, I know, I know. But I haven't finished the sentence. How do you know what I'm going to say? No, no, I know already. I know what you're going to say. I learned. I went to Yeshiva. How do you know what I'm going to say? I haven't said it yet. You guys know, I already know people like you. How do you know what I'm like? You don't even know my name yet. You have a beard. I know. They're not interested in the truth. They're interested in winning. And that's why I had this guy. I talked about him in one of the lectures two weeks ago. Tries to debate me. Hey, online. Private messaging, whatever. Scientific things. And I mentioned it. That I told him within a few moments. I told him, listen, you're not really looking for the truth. You're just looking to disseminate information. To disseminate your idea. You're not even reading the material I'm providing. You're not even listening. You're not anything. And he's all interested in science. Now, Baruch Hashem, we had the merit to come out with part two of the Torah and science lecture that we had as a uh, film. Baruch Hashem, it's very successful already. Thousands of views. People are giving good feedback on it. It's another 20-part section of, you know, putting a visual to the words that we said from the Torah. So I figured, you know, let me send it to the guy. He likes science. Let me show him a visual of Torah and science. Where when I talk about the different cures that the sages had from already 3,000 years ago, different inventions we already had from 3,000 years ago, showing wisdom, showing proof, showing that the Torah already knew over 3,300 years ago how many stars there are in the universe. Whereas modern science only started catching up in the last 10 years. Obviously, we didn't have telescopes and supercomputers 3,000 years ago. We had God. So he told us. Point is, this could only be from something, a source that's divine. So I figured, you know what, let me send this to this guy, because he likes science, apparently, or he claims to like science, and he claims to want the truth. So I give it, I send it to him, thinking, oh, you know, press play, like you press play, watching the cup saving the, uh, the, uh, the ducks in the middle of the highway. You get a breast play on something that says Torah and science. What do you care? You have nothing to do anyway. What is he write to me? Why are you sending to me? Why are you sending me this? LOL. Ha ha ha. Why are you sending me this? Meaning, I'm wasting my time. Because he's not interested in learning. He's just interested in proving his point, even if he knows his point is wrong. That's right. Yeah. So... 
Chazal told us that if it's a Jew, don't even bother debating him if he's an Apikos. Can I ask a question? Yeah. Okay, it's what uh, <clears throat> a Jewish guy from the Jewish family. Uh-huh. He's been practicing Judaism, all that, Torah, and all that, and, and all of a sudden he leaves and he says, I don't want this anymore, and he's Jewish and all that. He goes and dies. Could they bury him with a Jewish burial or in the cemetery where the Jews are buried? The burial of uh, Jews that are not Shomer Shabbat has to be, and not all places keep it, in Jerusalem they do. In Jerusalem and some other parts of the world, but mostly Jerusalem, if the pers- if the Jew is a not Shomer Shabbat, they bury him in a different section of the tem- cemetery. They don't bury him next to the Shomer Shabbat. Okay. So, Shabbat, um, it's not buried with the same... It's, okay. You could be in the same cemetery, but not in the same section. Okay. As the Shomer Shabbat. It could uh, be the same, the same that is, somebody leaves and he says, I don't want nothing with you this one anymore. Yeah, yeah. If, if they're not Shomer Shabbat, then yes. they... Uh, they're they, in separate, but in the same They're cemetery. in a separate place. But most places around the world don't follow this. They bury everyone together. There's actually a funny uh, joke about it where they say that... Um, Two people come to a uh, cemetery and they want to, you know, buy their uh, the plot. Their plot, you know, while they're still alive. So the uh, religious guy comes the first, and he says, "How much is it?" He says, "Oh, it's three thousand dollars." Well, then three thousand dollars not so bad. Takes the money out, pays it. The non-religious guy comes and says, "Okay, I want to do the same thing. I want to buy." Next to him, you know, my friend. Goes, oh, okay, five hundred thousand dollars. What five hundred thousand discrimination? Why five hundred thousand dollars? Three thousand dollars, my friend. Right now, two minutes. He's right next to me. Why five hundred thousand dollars? So, oh, because him, he's renting. The sheikh comes and he resurrected the dead. You buy. <laughs> That's a good answer. That is an excellent answer. You know. So. Rabbi Nazan is telling us here I like that one. That <laughs> if you're going to debate the heretic, first and foremost, know that I'm in. The heretic that we're talking about here, that Picos that we're talking about here is the one that's not Jewish, because with him you actually have a shot. You actually have a chance to be in because he may be looking for the truth, even though he's a missionary. Even though he goes and he tries to recruit Jews to Christianity. If you show him the truth, there's a chance you can actually turn him around. But if he's a Jew, your chances are very, very small and it could actually count, be counterproductive. So they said, don't even bother. But regardless of which, which one it is, make sure that the foundation of your <clears throat> argument... It's Torah. It's not your logic. It's not science. It's not psychology. It's not philosophy. It's Torah. So now, in the Gemara Masechet Sanhedrin, page 38b, The Gemara once again shows us the breadth of knowledge by the sages and says, listen, we've had many debates with the Goim. We've 
already know the questions they're going to ask you, and there are debates, and we already know their argument before they even bring it to you. So to save you the time, here's the answers. Because every one of their questions, every one of their so-called claims, because God wrote the Torah, and not some guy, like the New Testament, he put every one of their questions, that they have any verse that they have a question about, he put the answer right next to it. So it's not too far. So it's not like saying, listen, they asked about Moses, but you find out the, the answer in Parashat Bereshit, when Moses wasn't even alive yet. Or they asked about Adam, but the answer is in the book of Samuel. No, 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 my friend. Because God is the, the truth of all truth, says, you're going to have a question. I'm not only going to give you the answer, I'm going to put the answer right in front of you. Right next to it. That Meaning that if you're really looking for the truth, you'll find it. It's not too far away from you. Loba Shamaimi. The Torah is not in heaven, it's not in the sky. It's right in front of you. So Abban Yochanan says the following. says these are a handful, about a half a dozen different claims that the idol worshippers or all types of heretics will claim against the Torah, where we say the foundation of all Judaism, foundation of Torah, is one God. It's a single God. There's never been anything before Him. There will never be anything after Him. There isn't anything now other than Him. He was, He is, and He will be. Right, that's it. Simple. But the Goim say, in the book of Genesis, chapter 1, verse 26, it is written... It is written, let us make man in our image. Now let us make man in our image is plural. So Chazal says, when Moses saw this, when he wrote this, Hashem told him what to write and Moses wrote it. He said, God, they're going to say, there's, you're saying there's more than one God here. The heretics, the Kofrim, the Apikosim, they're going to go, they're going to, Eat us alive with this verse. If there's only a single God, why are you saying let us? Hashem said write it. Write it anyway. Why write it anyway? Because if they continue reading to the next verse, from 26, you go to 27. It says, The next verse says, God created man in his image. Singular. Right. So he, he didn't say He didn't say he they created. Right. He didn't say we created him. Or we or they or we or they created him or uh, what's called like we created him in our image. No, he said, the answer is singular. He created. Next. Also in the book of Genesis chapter eleven, verse seven, in the uh, the whole issue of the um uh, of uh, the, when they built the end of Parashat Noach, the Tower of Babel, and said, let us descend and confuse their speech. When Hashem saw that they are building the Tower of Babel, He said, let us come down there and confuse them and change speech. And that's when He created 70 languages. So He said, look, let us create, let's confuse them. This is all plural. But if you go to two verses... 
from it, it says, Vayered Hashem lirot ta'ir ve'et amigdal. It says, Hashem descended, singular, to see the city and the tower. Again, went from plural to singular. Continues again. Third case, Kisham Niglu Elav Elohim. It says, a, um, Jacob built an altar in Bethel because there, uh, because their God had appeared. Which seems like it's a it's more than one God, Chas Shalom. Their God appeared to him. It's in plural. Elohim. Or Niglu Elav. Niglu means it's like a plural. So it, so it says the uh, the answer is again four verses next to it. Jacob uh, went to Bethel to build the altar to God who answers me in the day of my distress. So again, going from plural to singular. And this is again three other cases in the book of Samuel, in the book of Deuteronomy, in the book of Daniel. Book of Daniel is one of the popular ones where it says, Adi Kelav Sani Remiv. It is written, I, Daniel, Daniel is talking about himself, I watched until thrones were set up. Thrones, why, if there's only a single God, why are there multiple thrones? Mm-hmm. Should be one throne. Mm-hmm. But then it says, V'atik But the verse continues, In the ancient days, God sat, meaning only one God. Mm-hmm. So now, Rabban Yochanan asks, Why? Why is he writing on one end, plural, but in the other end, in the end, the concluding end, it's singular? It says, let's create man in our image, but the creation itself was in my image. Why are we going, what's the point? And Rabban Yochanan gives us the answer. From here Hashem is trying to teach us humility. Because in order for you to be the best teacher there ever is, you have to teach by example. Who knows that more than God? It says, I created man, but I also created the angels. Rabban Yochanan says, "Ena kadosh baruch hu said daval, ela im ken nimlach befamalia shel mala." Hashem itbarach, the Holy One, blessed is He, does not do anything unless He first consults the heavenly court. He goes to His angel. He says, "Listen, I created you, and I don't really need your help. But at the same token, I want you to feel like you have significance, you have a purpose in the world." If Hashem didn't want to share responsibility, he would just stay by himself. He doesn't need us. He doesn't benefit out of us. He doesn't need man to pray to him. He doesn't need the angels to serve him. He's perfect. The whole point of creation was for good to create good. The angels want to have a purpose. They want to have not just just robots doing things. So Hashem says, listen... Come, what do you think about man? We created in our image? Well, we have, we know the difference between right and wrong? Alright, let's do it. As if they're part of the decision. But this is all theoretical. This is not really how, he doesn't need their decision. The point being is that he's trying to teach us humility. Humility. Wow. That even God asked for advice. Wow. What is it that, Rabbi? 
Where is it? And this then, is a Gemara, Masechet Sanhedrin, page 38b. Sanhedrin? Yes. This is also sourced, you could talk about it also, in the Rambam's book, uh, Morei Nevuchim, chapter 2, ver, uh, uh, verse 6. And also, Rashi talks about it. What is this, Sanhedrin at? Sanhedrin 38b. 38b. Okay. It's in several different places. Point being is that here we see that Hashem gave the cure before the illness, before the kofrim, before the heretics, before the of Avodazara came with their argument going against the, you know, saying the Torah, because in our New Testament they sing God is three. Yeah. <laughs> is that always called the majestic, the majestic plural, right? It's what right, right. So, the New Testament says that God is three. Shalom. Says there's a Father, a Son, Holy oh, yeah. Spirit, all this nonsense. So their main argument is to constantly say, in order to validate the guy that died 2,000 years ago, if he even lived Bechal, is by validating the three, the, the, the Trinity. And how do they validate the Trinity? They validate the Trinity by using these verses, by saying, look, there's more than one God. Look, there's multiple parts. No, 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 my friend. There's no multiple parts. God specifically told you Right here. Every time you have the question, the answer is right next to it. So you can't even say it's not related or it's not connected. It's right next to it. The answer is right next to the question. Showing you that Hashem knows the answer before you even know you had a question. And this is again one of the important things that a person needs to know when they're learning Torah. They need to understand that they, if they're going to use... If they're going to debate anybody, they have to use the Torah as, as a foundation. That's why it says in the Perkei uh, Avot, chapter 5, verse 26, um, delve into it, meaning the Torah, and delve into it some more, because everything is in it. Everything is in it. So, they once asked... The Rabbeinu Bunam of Pshischa, heresy is so against Hashem, why does Hashem allow it? Why does Hashem allow these heretics, these kofrim, these apikos, these apikosim, why does He allow them to even exist? They're saying God doesn't this, God doesn't that, why does He even let them exist? <laughs> And Rabbi Bunam of Pshischa says something very interesting. He says, if it wasn't for heretics, no poor person would ever get any help. Meaning all of the homeless people will always be homeless. All of the poor people will starve to death. And ask him, what does one thing have to do with the other? Because if everyone really had Emunah and Hashem, they know that everything comes from Hashem. Panasah comes from Shemaim. So when the poor man comes there and says, oh, give me some stick. No, no, don't worry. Hashem's going to give you. I have Emunah and Hashem. Hashem's going to give you. Whatever you deserve, Hashem's going to give you. So since the rich man doesn't believe in God like that, he says, listen, Hashem's not going to give you, I'll give it you. I'll help you out. <laughs> I'll help you out. Since Hashem's not helping you, I'll help you. Wow. So, after that it says, And know before whom you toil. And know that your employer can be relied upon 
and pays you the wage for your labor. In Gemara Masechet Menachot, page 99b, we mentioned a story a couple of weeks ago of how Ben Dama, one of the sages, came to his teacher, Rabbi Ishmael, and he told him, for the Av, now that I've learned the entire Torah, now that I've learned the entire Torah, Gemara, Zohar, Mishnah, Chumash, Tanakh, Alachot, everything I learned. Can I go learn some Greek knowledge? <laughs> some secular knowledge? <laughs> I learned. It's not like I, he's a fool. He says, now that I learned the entire Torah, this is a sage, this is somebody that's able to revive the dead. It's not like just anybody. I learned the entire Torah. Can I go learn? So Rabbi Ishmael says something to him. It says in the Mishnah, Know before whom you toil. Meaning, you're not learning Torah because you're trying to become a big rabbi. You're not learning Torah including the facts that prove the Torah against the heretics because one day you're going to be a big debater. Or that you're even ever going to debate. You're not learning Torah because you're going to publicize it to the world and become some big publishing house. You're learning Torah because you're obligated to do it. Pure and simple. To such an extent that you even need to get to a level of learning Torah where you know so much Torah, you can debate anyone if Hashem ever gave you the opportunity to do so. And to get to that level, to get to that level of knowledge of Torah, you have to be what's called shakud. Means you have to be very, very diligent in your study of Torah. It can't be like you're studying on the side for a couple hours here, a couple hours there. It must fulfill your everything. The way to identify whether someone is truly a Talmud Chacham or not, the Chazonish says that it's not the, uh, being diligent, being shakud, is not defined by how much time you spend studying Torah. You can study Torah for 10 hours a day, 15 hours a day, 20 hours a day, and still not be shakud, still not be considered really diligent. The Chazonish says what it's really dependent on is if the person has made a commitment wholeheartedly to devote his entire personality to Torah. It has nothing to do with time. You can study only two hours a day. That's all you have. You're studying, you're working, you have this job that requires X amount of hours. There is no way around it. You have responsibilities, you have this, but you have two solid hours that you can study. That's it. But you can still be counted as someone that's diligent. Why? Because even though you're not studying Torah the entire day, Hashem's on your mind all day. From the minute you wake up to the minute you go to sleep. Every single act you do has Hashem in mind. Oh wait, I'm going to go give this guy change. Let me make sure that I give him, I count and calculate that it's honest change. And I'm not cheating this guy. Oh, he forgot to give, uh, he gave me too much. Even my mistake. Everything. 
The point being is that Hashem is on your mind at all times. When my Rav told me this for the first time, that Moshe Rabbeinu had Hashem on his mind at all times. He said, oh, Moshe Rabbeinu spoke to God all the time. He said, yes, but you know what? Even the sages mentioned the Gemara, they, spoke, they, talked, they uh, thought about God, not just sometimes, all the time. First time I heard it, I'm like, how is that possible? I think I can understand thinking about Hashem when you pray. I can understand thinking about Hashem when you're studying. But all the time? Meaning that when you open your eyes, you're thinking about Hashem. You get out of the bathroom, you're yeah. thinking about Hashem. Every time. You're about to breathe. Breathe. Breathe in. I'm not talking about like breathing. I'm not talking about eat and you're doing a blessing. So you just breathe. You're thanking Hashem for giving you air. You, you breathe out, thanking Hashem that it came out. You... See, you thank Hashem that Hashem gave you vision. Everything. Like literally Everything. thinking about Hashem all the time. It's impossible for me to understand. Not that I got to that level, but I finally have a small understanding of what it means only after I started learning Torah that it is possible. How? If you must study Torah and you devote your life to Torah, it's very much possible to think about Hashem all the time. Even in this generation. Yeah. You don't need to be Rabbi Akiva. Yeah. So, but it's exactly like the Chazoni said. You have to devote everything to it. It's not just the learning Torah, but it's also the Masim Torim. It's everything that you do. So, so when Ben Dama came to Rabbi, to Rabbi Ishmael and he said, Can I go learn secular studies? He says, It's a mitzvah in the Torah. V'yigita bo yomam v'layla. And you got to it, meaning the Torah, day and night. So if you can find a time that's not day and it's not night, that you can actually <laughs> study secular studies. But any time that's day or night, well, you you're obligated to learn Torah. Yeah. That was a great answer. So when someone understands this, they start getting closer and closer to the truth. of where they need to be. But even when someone tries, tries to do tshuva, tries to fulfill the will of Hashem, I have many religious people that come to me, even some of them Hasidish. They tell me they have emunah issues. They know everything I'm telling you right now, they know. They learned Torah, they've been going to yeshiva for their whole life, but when it comes to something specific, most of the time it's parnasah, sometimes it's zivu, sometimes it's health, different issues for different people, but usually the common problem when it comes to money. People start questioning God. It's like he spent all of his money on creation. He ran out of money. What gives someone that knows Torah? Someone that doesn't know Torah, someone that doesn't know if Hashem is really real or not, in the first place, it's understandable why they wouldn't believe that ignorant fool that uh, is trying to spread his heresy with his uh, atheism to the world that I debated, or he wanted to debate me, but it was just a waste of time. There's nothing, there's no way, uh, there's nothing to argue here. He doesn't believe in anything. He believes that once he dies, he becomes a tree. So he'll become a tree. And probably they'll cut the tree and make it into a book. Hopefully it's Sefer Torah. But the point is, it's a... There's nothing to argue with a guy like this. 
Because he doesn't know anything. He doesn't know there's a difference between him and the monkey. To him, it's the same thing. But the guy that went to yeshiva, the guy that wears the big hat, the guy that has the long beard, the guy that has the pears that look beautiful, the guy that has the job, everything. How does he have any questions? How does he have any questions? The answer is, was given by Rabbi Yitzchak of Komana, of Komana. And he says, really what this Mishnah is trying to tell us, is that yes, you have to be diligent in your Torah studies. Because you're going to have to answer the heretic. You're going to have to answer the kofel. But who is the biggest kofel in the world? The biggest kofel in the world is inside you. It's your Yetzirah that's trying to like constantly trying to say, no, listen, Hashem doesn't care about you. Hashem may be left. Hashem cares about everybody except you. Hashem is too busy for you. Maybe Hashem is not really here anymore. He's trying to convince you non-stop, non-stop, of something against the Torah. And He's inside you. He's inside you. Barati Torah, Barati Yetzara, Barat Torah Tavli. Gemara Maseret Brachot, Hashem says to us, I created the Yetzara, the Satan, the Malach Hamavit. He's bigger, smarter, stronger than you. But there's only one cure. I gave it to you also, Torah. So that's why Rabbi Elazar is saying, first and foremost, study Torah, because that heretic, the one we've been talking about for the last two hours, is actually inside you. He's not the guy that's in a church. He's not the guy that's in a reformed shul. He's inside you. You're the one that doesn't want to wake up on time. You want to sleep a little extra and then little by little you stop going to shul altogether. And little by little you don't keep kosher anymore. And little by little you start driving on Shabbat. That's all coming from that kofet inside you. It's all coming from him. We're not talking about a stranger. We're talking about the guy in the mirror. That's why you need to learn Torah. And that's why you have to be diligent with it. Because if you take it hafif, 50-50, he's going to take over. Why? Because he already has, he's already paying rent. <laughs> he's already inside the house, you just don't notice. Because you're thinking you're a tzaddik. You're thinking, oh, look in the mirror, look, I have a keep on, I have this, everybody thinks they're okay. Everyone thinks they're okay. Little do they know, the kofar's inside, he's relaxed, he's just waiting for you around the corner. He's waiting for the minute you slip up. He's waiting for the second Hashem gives you a test, and that's when He gives you all the whole the whole deck. The whole deck He's giving. See, I told you this, I told you this, I told you this. He has a whole book of kfirah against Hashem already ready for you. Every single proof, He's already ready. He's got the whole book. So unless you have serious Torah inside you, you already lost the battle. Unless you have proofs inside you from the Torah you were diligent about, you already lost the battle. Because he's ready, he's been waiting for you. He's waiting for you for days, for hours, for months. It couldn't even be for years. There's one huge, huge rabbi, huge rabbi. Made many people do tshuva. Many people do tshuva. Mamash went crazy. Lost his mind. Started doing things that are just, I can't even explain it. I will not even mention a name. It's not for me to mention anybody's name. Point being is that you can't even judge him. 
Do you know why? Because his Yetzirah left 40 years ago. He was so strong. His Torah was so strong. Yetzirah was like, I can't bother with this guy. I got to get stronger. So the Yetzirah has been working out for 40 years. 40 years he's working out. And the guy got used to know Yetzirah. The big rabbi got used to know Yetzirah. Next thing you know, he left the door open. The Yetzirah came in and destroyed the entire house. And now many people are saying he's lost case. Because his Yetzirah was waiting for him around the corner. The biggest kofel is inside you. Don't think we're talking about some uh, missionary, really. In reality, I'm talking about us. I'm talking about the guy in the camera. Wow. So if we take this into account, we start understanding things a little differently. Rabbi Yosef Karo the Maran Bet Yosef, they want to put together the Shulchan Aruch. He was at such a level, 500 years ago approximately, he was at such a level, he'd have an angel, angel, come to him every day, teach him Torah. Every day angel come to him, teach him Torah. We can't even draw an angel. He has an angel coming to his house, teach him Torah. One day, he's studying, but he has his tefillin on, you know, in those days, they used to keep tefillin on most of the day. Yeah. Especially at Sadiqim. There's still some people like that today, but not, for the most part, nothing. <clears throat> and all of a sudden, this tefillin on the, of the head rip and fall on the floor. Now, anyone knows, but tefillin, if your tefillin hits the floor, if it's inside the box, still, it's different. To a lesser extent. But if it's the actual tefillin, fall and hit the floor, then you either have to fast or you have to give tzedakah in replacement of a fast. And obviously pick them up and kiss them. But one day, tefillin are on, everything is fine, thank you, everything is fine, the tefillin rip and fall on the floor. Mili picks them up, kisses it. It's a tzaddik, it's not like uh, one of us. Tzaddik, for him, tefillin to rip, fall on the floor, it's a big deal. He actually understood the significance of this. He's very sorry. He's trying to figure out the tshuva he has to do. All of a sudden, the angel comes up. He goes, I did it. My friend? My angel? Why'd you do it? Because for a moment, for a moment, we're not talking about for an hour, we're not talking about for a day, we're not talking about for a year. For a moment, you didn't think about God. Wow. That's heavy. For a moment you didn't think about God and because you at your level you didn't think about God for a moment you have no idea how many heavenly worlds you destroyed because you didn't think about God. Wow. The Baal Shem Tov heard the story And he had a nice chidush on Psalm 32, verse 2. The Psalm itself says, Praiseworthy is the man 
whom Hashem does not ascribe iniquity, and whose spirit there is no deceit. So, the literal translation is what I just said, but then if you break down the words into three parts, which is what the Baal Shem Tov said, Asher Adam lo yachshov Hashem Praiseworthy is the man who didn't think about God and for that it's considered a sin for him. Meaning, Asher Adam lo yachshov Hashem lo avon Meaning, praiseworthy is the man that it's such a high level that for him not to think about God for him, that's a sin, because the rest of us are struggling with much bigger sins. Right. So that's where Rabbi Yosef Kao got to. Rabbi Yosef Kao got to such a high level that for him not to think about God for a moment was much more significant than we could even imagine. Now, the Mishnah ends with know that your employer can be relied upon to pay you the wage of your labor. Now, once a person truly understands that really their whole purpose is to battle the inner kofir inside them, the only way they're going to win is if they toil with Torah for the sake of Torah, not for the sake of anything else. If there's any other benefits, there's benefits. The only way they can get to that point is if they realize that really the boss is Hashem Barach. But since we have such a big Yetzirah, the Mishnah finishes off with something too. He says, remember, that same Hashem Barach that you have to do everything for regardless... Regardless of whether you say you're going to get reward or not. You got to do it. Regardless of anything. You got to do it. He's so good that he's actually going to reward you for it. You have to do it anyway. But he's so good. You can rely on him to pay a wage. Meaning you can rely that everything you do, even though you have to do it, you'll get rewarded for it. One way is to understand it is that Baruch Hashem, that we're going to get rewarded for it, but even more so that if he obviously is happy with your work, you have no reason to have emunah issues. You have no reason to worry about Parnassah. He wants you to survive, doesn't he? You're fulfilling his will. Yeah. You're one of the very few people that's actually learning Torah in the world. You have 7.4 billion people in the world approximately. There's a uh, thing, a clock of some kind, a counter, that shows how many people are in the world approximately. Of course, they don't know an exact number. And it continues going higher and higher and higher and higher by tens and hundreds per second. And right now, the last time I looked at it was almost 7.4 billion people. Out of the 7.4 billion people... There are approximately 20 million Jews, some say there's 15, some say there's more. Point is, let's say 20 million. 
Out of the 20 million Jews, there's approximately, let's say, 3 million religious. 3 million religious, meaning 3 million Shomre Shabbat. Out of the 3 million religious, not everybody learns Torah. Let's just be generous and say that 20% learn Torah. 600,000. 600,000. Out of the 600,000, of course not all 600,000 are studying at the same time. Some, you know, it's different time zones. When it's 8 o'clock in the morning in Israel, it's 1 a.m. in America. When it's 8 o'clock in the morning in America, it's uh, uh, 17 hours later, I believe, in Australia. So there's different time zones. But in the book of Jeremiah, Hashem makes a promise. And he says, Im lo briti yomam v'layla, chukot shamayim lo samti. Chukot shamayim v'aret lo samti. And he says to us, if not for my covenant, day and night, the rules of the world will cease to exist. Meaning, that if there isn't someone in the world, at all times, learning Torah, the the nature, what you call nature, that keeps the world intact, gravity, oxygen, rotation, everything, will cease to exist immediately. Which means, every person that's learning Torah, is partly responsible for the rotation of the world, for the oxygen that we breathe, for the gravity we rely on, for the atoms continuing to spin, meaning that every single one of us that's learning Torah is responsible for a part of the population that still exists. So if you have 7.5 billion people, let's say you have 50,000 people, Learning Torah. That means that they're in charge of a couple of hundred thousand people being alive right this second. Meaning that if they stop, they just say, you know what? Instead of learning the Shield Torah, I'm going to close the book. I'm going to watch baseball, basketball, I don't know, American Idol, some other Torah Hashem. I'm going to go watch something else instead of learning Torah. In essence, Hashem, unless someone, Hashem puts somebody else to replace you, Hashem has the right, according to His law, to wipe out 200,000 people. How about the 36, Rabbi? The 36 tzaddikim? The 36 tzaddikim give Hashem a reason to continue the world altogether. 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 There has to be 36 tzaddikim in every generation. But, again, we rely on them a lot. We don't know who they are, but we rely on them a lot. But the point is, is that each one of us contributed. Is a very much a promise that Hashem Ibarach said is that the only reason why I created this world is for the Torah that I created even before the world. 974 generations. Before Hashem put this world together, He already wrote the Torah with black fire on white fire. So, 
This is one of the most important things that a person needs to understand that when they question Hashem Barach, they have to understand who they're questioning. Are they questioning someone that owes them? Or are they questioning someone that they owe everything to? Once you correct your thoughts, you're never going to have emunah issues. <clears throat> Once you realize you're the one in debt, you're never going to have any problems in regards to emunah. It's going to be very easy to believe that Hashem is running the world. And it's also going to be very easy to live with less stress. Because if Hashem is running the world, He knows what He's doing. Of course. If He knows what He's doing, what are you so worried about? And if you're one of the few that's responsible for a couple of hundred thousand people being alive right to the second, why would He starve you? Why would he hurt the one that's keeping the 200,000 alive? Doesn't make any sense. Yeah. That's the point. So when you learn Hashem's Torah, Rabbi Lazar is telling your employer, you can rely on him. He's going to pay your wage. Not only because he's so amazing, but you're also keeping, if you will, his creation alive. By learning his Torah, by fulfilling his Torah. So as I mentioned to you guys, and I mentioned to everyone, in regards to doing tshuva, in regards to converting, it's not so hard. You just got to take God seriously. Once you take Him seriously, your life becomes Ganeden. You're already living in a lot about, yes, you're going to have difficulties, you're going to have tests, you're going to have headaches, you're going to have little kids being awake till 6 o'clock in the morning. You're going to have a, uh, you, know, you know, missing shoes here and there. You're going to have your boss firing you, hiring you, customers yelling. You're going to have all the basic tests of life. It's normal. But as long as you know that there's an eye that's watching, that's what it's like, Abba, are you watching? You got this? You know what's going on? Absolutely, you got it. I don't know what you're doing, but as long as I know you have it, I'm fine. As long as you know he's there, everything changes. But if you're alone, if you are the kofer, if you let in this kofer that's inside you out, you let him go party and start drinking, you have no hope. You have no hope. You're already in Gehenom. The Gehenom shield that everybody keeps asking me to have, you already live in Gehenom without Emunah. You don't need to know about the game, what actually happens in the physical game, though. You're already living it with no emunah. What are you alive for? How are you surviving the week? Honestly, I look at my life previous to old Chubai and everything else. Honestly, I don't know how I survived. Even before the sickness. Even before the sickness. Such a stressful, nightmarish life. Every day a problem. Every day this. And you have no idea how to fix any of it. Why? Because it's all in your hands. Your hands can't do anything. So the more you minimize yourself, the more you make room for God. The more you give God room to do His will, the more you can sit back and relax and enjoy the show. And this is the reason why I tell you, anyone that's looking to convert, make sure you're converting 100%. Because just going to the bed dean, passing the test, anybody can do that. 
But if you're going to be a Mechalel Shabbat, a week later, a month later, a year later, five years later, you're the biggest fool in the world. Because right now you're allowed to do it. You're allowed to drive on Shabbat, you're allowed to do whatever you want, eat whatever you want, as long as it's not a moving, you know, living organism. You don't even have to have a formal wedding ceremony. You can marry whoever you want, divorce them the next day. You're not obligated to learn Torah day and night. You just need to be a moral person. A moral, decent person comply with approximately 60 different laws. Because the seven laws of Noah break up into approximately 60 different laws. Which are mostly ethical, logical laws. Respect your parents, be an honest person, and so on and so forth. That's it. It's very, very simple. And you'll have a share of the world to come. Do whatever you want on Shabbat. Drive, don't drive, eat, don't eat. It's up to you. But don't come tell me, listen, I'm going to stay on Noah high, but I'm going to keep Shabbat like some people are doing now. You have a lot of crazies in the world now where unfortunately they listen to this kofel, this guy that actually claims to be a rabbi, but he's really a kofel. He's confusing everyone. Where he says, no, listen, I have a chidush. He has a chidush. Nobody's thought about it in 3,000 years. We all waited for him. What? Even the goyim can keep Shabbat. Rambam was wrong. This one was wrong. Everyone was wrong until we got to him. This is exactly what I mean when I talk about a kufil. This is someone that thinks that he can interpret the Torah. So he says, goyim can keep the uh, Shabbat. And it wasn't referring to them that they can't keep Shabbat. There's one verse, as he said, just like Every time someone will bring a question, Hashem makes sure to give the answer right next to it. If you look at Shabbat, the mitzvah of Shabbat, what's right next to it? Hashem says, this covenant is between me and you. Not me and everyone. No, it's a pact between Me us. and you, Am Yisrael. Yeah, that's right. Why would Hashem spend any word, any letter, any time saying specifically that the covenant is between him and Am Yisrael, if really everyone's allowed to keep Shabbat. Ah. If he would have wrote that in his book, no one would have bought it. Because the book is not valid then. You understand? But to write mistakes is easy. Because it serves our ego and also makes money. Point being here, guys, is that if you're going to follow Hashem's law, follow Hashem's law. Not the kufir inside us. Not the heretic that's inside us that's constantly trying to convince us to do something that's different than what God said. That's different than what the sages said. Don't make your own laws. You want to convert? Convert. You want to do tshuva? Do tshuva. You want to be righteous? Be righteous. But don't be 50-50. There's no time for 50-50. Mashiach comes. Mashiach comes. It says specifically, He won't give you a trial. He won't ask you, hey, listen, did you keep Shabbat? Did you keep, you kept kosher? Or you went to the shul, you're going to move into the shul, you went there? He's not going to do that. He's going to smell your sins and destroy you with the words coming out of his mouth. The righteous get rewarded and saved, whereas the wicked get destroyed by the words of the Mashiach. Words, not actions. Now he's not hitting you with a stick, no guns, no planes, no bombs, nothing. Words. 
after smelling the sins of the wicked. So this is why it's such a big choice. If you're going to do anything, do it right. You're going to convert, make sure you're ready to keep everything. Because it's too expensive not to keep it. Better off stay not Jewish. Be a Noahide. If you're going to do tshuva, do it 100%. Don't be 50%. And the reason why is because the fact that you already know and you're going against God anyway makes you worse than some Jew that lives in the middle of Africa and never heard about Torah. He's Anus. You're not. The point being here is when we know in front of whom we toil, when we know who we're in front of, when we know that everything we're doing is for Hashem Barach, not only is it easier for us to justify the hard work it requires, but also easier for us to beat the heretic inside us because we know we're getting paid for this anyway. Any questions? Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, Apikorus and Kufar, what's it that he says? Is it synonym or... Synonym? Same thing. Apikorus was actually a... Um, named by Magenavot. Magenavot says it was named after a Greek philosopher approximately 400 years before the destruction of the Beit HaMikdash. He was a Greek philosopher that uh, constantly preached beliefs against God uh, pretty much saying uh, that uh, God created the world, but then he left. So they called it, uh, it became a synonymous with uh, being a heretic. Um, it's uh, just like, for example, when somebody talks about if they, uh, you know, if they, if somebody stole their money. So now, unfortunately, it's a big chilul Hashem, but nonetheless, it's true. They say, oh, they, uh, the guy was a Madoff. Like Bernard Madoff that stole billions of dollars from people. So he's become synonymous with stealing. Or, for example, when uh, the guy, the Italian guy, that almost 100 years ago cheated a bunch of people, his name was Charles Ponzi. So anytime somebody cheats something, it's called a Ponzi scheme. So, Epicolas was also, got his name about 2,400 years ago. Next. Baruch Adonai Amen Amen. Amen, amen. Amen.